All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Um, two preliminary things before we uh, get into Luke 13. We are going to return to Isaiah uh, beginning next week. Um, I wanted to be back in it this week, but um, just didn't have quite the time to make sure I turn the heater off in my office. I just didn't have quite the time to develop that the way that I wanted to. And so instead of kind of rushing it and giving you something that I wasn't totally satisfied with, I thought we would do uh, Luke 13 instead. I do keep sort of a reserve of uh, sermons uh, for uh, times just like this or for times when I'm called on to preach outside of Fellowship Bible Church on short notice. And so it's nice to have a stock of those uh, in reserve. I, I think I have four or five at a time, and so I'll have to replenish this just a little bit. But uh, Luke, we'll be in Luke 13. Second, uh, Danielle was asking me last night, uh, she was reading about the um, Hamas attacks that took place in Israel, uh, uh, what, what would be for them the start of Yom Kippur, which was uh, sort of their version of, it's their highest, holiest day. And it, uh, it's symbolic for both parties. And that happened what would have been Saturday um, in Israel. That's a strategically timed attack, not only because of the holiday, but because it's a high Shabbat. Um, most Jewish people are settling in to do less than nothing. Uh, restaurants, um, food places shut down. Um, the city goes into sort of a Sabbath shutdown. And uh, if you're going to attack Israel, you would definitely want to do it on a Saturday. And so uh, Danielle was asking me some questions about that, and it occurred to me that um, maybe uh, it would be helpful to explain some of the reasons for those attacks. Now, by no means do I claim to be an expert, but if you study theology and if you study that section of the world, you will come to learn what those uh, challenges are. So. Um, I'm going to give you a bird's eye view of what's going on over there in a general sense. As far as the attacks themselves yesterday, I know no more about it than you do. Um, there were, um, it was a coordinated effort by land and sea. It's over a very narrow disputed strip of land called the Gaza Strip. Um, I'll explain what that is in just a minute. And apparently there was quite a bit of loss of life on the Israeli side. Um, some estimates I saw said that more than 500 people were killed. Um, there was also a lot of kidnapping and snatching of people. Um, it, was a, it was a kind of a long planned attack from this terrorist group called Hamas. Okay. So let me just touch on some of those um, generally. And again, I don't claim to be an expert on modern uh, Palestinian-Israeli relations, but again, if you study these religions, you do pick up some information. So Hamas is an Arabic word that means violence. And it's a terrorist organization whose stated purpose is to eradicate Israel. Now these, um, this fight between um, Islam and Israel goes way back. Um, to hear the Islamic tell it, they would say that it goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the son of a slave, and Isaac was the son by, by natural means. 
and God chose Ishmael. He was uh, God chose Isaac rather to be the covenant keeper. He did bless Ishmael. Ishmael was given his freedom, and very on, very early on, as God predicted, um, Ishmael, the descendants of Ishmael, and the descendants of Isaac were always sort of at each other's throats. Um, that blossomed in many ways as you read um, different parts of the Old Testament and God gets very angry at the descendants of Ishmael because they showed no pity on the descendants of Isaac. When Muhammad came along, he put those long-bedded differences into theology and made Jewish people, made the children of Isaac the enemy as Muhammad said they were the children of Ishmael. As the centuries moved forward, you had three major religions fighting over the same territories, the same holy sites. Um, Muslims, Jews, and Catholics. Um, we're talking now Crusades era. Catholic, uh, the Roman, Holy Roman Empire raised armies and sent soldiers, crusaders, over into the Middle East and fought against the Arabic Islamic holders of that region. And that is a sin that Islamic people to this day hold against Catholics. If you were to go there today, you would see lots of things. One of the most prominent things you would see is that at these holy sites, there's literally three sections. There's a section for the Muslim, there's a section for the Jew, and there's a section for Catholics. Now, so you know, Islamic people don't, by and large, differentiate between Catholics and Protestants any more than you differentiate between Shia and Shiite Muslims. Okay? It's a very complicated um, Arabic system. So what did I say? I said it wrong. Sunni and Shiite. Yeah, Sunni and Shiite. And... Um, they don't distinguish between people like us who would have said, well, I didn't support the Crusades. Um, <laughs> that doesn't matter to them. The most recent anger that the Hamas and groups like it harbor against Israel and against Western democracies, however, relatively speaking, is much more recent. Okay. Go back to World War II, I'm sorry, World War I, and you had, do you remember the Triple Entente Anybody remember the Triple Entente from your history books? The Germans, the Austro-Hungarians, and does anybody remember the third uh, part of the Triple Entente? Uh, they were part of uh, Austria-Hungary. Hung the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks. You, you remember this now? This is, the, this is the Islamic world of the Middle East. And it was kind of a tottering empire at the time. Huge, big landmass. And at the beginning of the war, it was Germany, you know, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottomans, okay, against the Western democracies. And when the Western democracies prevailed, they did something very foolish. They punished Germany beyond Germany's ability to be punished. 
And Woodrow Wilson at the time said, this is so foolish. All we're doing is we're laying animosity for another war. And that's exactly what happened uh, 30 years later um, for World War II. Another foolish thing that they did is they went into the Middle East and they chopped it up. And because they won the war, they felt they got the right to draw the maps. There was a strong um, Jewish um, support, especially in Britain, and the Western democracies literally went into that region and removed Palestinians off of land and out of homes that they had had for hundreds of years and replaced those people with the hated Jews. There are Palestinians today who still wear necklaces with keys on them because that was the key to their old house that their great-great-grandfather got kicked out of and they're going to go reclaim it. The theology is that um, Muslims and Jews can't get along. The hatred and animosity has fomented because Jews have been placed onto what Islamic people feel is their land by right. And the people that have enabled them to do that are Western democracies. Um, The reason you're like, well, why do they hate America? That was Britain. (laughs) Well, again, America is selling Israel arms that allows, in their minds, Israel to keep the land. They would say, apart from American munitions, we would overwhelm them. That might be true. I don't know. Um, I was reading some yesterday that these attacks were considered unprecedented. That's the word that in the news cycle kept getting repeated over and over again. I don't, I don't know what they mean by that word. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, used that word. Um, I don't know what he meant by that word, so I'll I'll reserve judgment on it, but I don't think it's unprecedented. Um, if you've studied the Six-Day War or the Yom Kippur War, you had whole nations, Egypt, Syria, um, Saudi Arabia, Iran, um, converging on Israel simultaneously. And some of us in here lived through the Six-Day War. Um, you followed the news during that time. And it was a much more coordinated much um, more existential threat to the Jews living there at the time than these attacks have been. Um, By unprecedented, maybe unprecedented in this age or uh, sort of an unprecedented terroristic style of guerrilla warfare, maybe that's what they meant. But Israel has suffered worse in the form of nationwide coordinated effort. I hope that makes sense. So I'm seeing some interested looks on faces um, I'm happy to answer any questions, but again, if I don't know the answer, I'll just say I don't know. Um, but I, that is a general sense of what's going on. Um, wait one second, Pam. I'll take that question, okay? Um, as far as how Americans should think of it, I think there's a few different answers. Um, I think there's a, a, um, a, a national answer in the sense that Israel is our ally and they need our support. I think there's a humanitarian answer that you don't have to be a born-again Christian to answer. These were unprovoked terrorist attacks. And that's, if you condemn that, no matter what religion is doing it and what religion is receiving it, 
um, theologically, um, Israel is still God's chosen people, and that land belongs to them. By God's right, giving it to them, and God will one day give it to them permanently, and um, in a much greater degree than they have it now. And so, um, yeah, I think I think those are all different ways that American Christians uh, should look at it. So, uh, yes, Pam. Yeah. That's a good question. They don't, they have their own set of holy scriptures that they say gives them the land. And so um, they're like, no, we don't believe yours, we believe ours, and ours says that this belongs to us. Yes, Steve. Yeah, um, that's that's been a that's been that that's as old as war, you know, um, and you get um, it factors into the strategy. Okay, uh, that's what Japan wanted to do, for example, in World War II, but then they got greedy. Uh, they wanted to hit the United States while it was weak, gain a whole bunch of land, and then sue for peace while they still held it all. You know what I mean? Um, problem is they underestimated the resolve of the United States people. Um, and the United States people weren't in a negotiating mood <laughs> um, after Pearl Harbor. Um, and uh, so, you know, again, this is a trouble that we faced in Afghanistan. Okay, um, You can't, when we invaded Afghanistan, um, unless you were willing to kill every last Afghani, you weren't going to win that war. Um, there's an Arabic proverb that an Islamic man waits 90 years for revenge, and then when he takes it, he chastises himself for his impatience. Um, and so in that culture, they hold on. They, they believe that children should be punished for the sins of the fathers and they hold that against them generationally. And so, um, no, they don't want to give it back, and they don't see that it was ever theirs to be taken or redistributed. So, yeah. I, I will say um, very quickly, while, um, while I very much would like, get forced to take sides, I would be on Israel's side. I will say that having been there for just a couple weeks, um, the Israeli people treat foreigners in a really awful way. Um, the Israeli people, it's not just the Palestinians, it's visiting Americans. And they either treat you like dogs or they just pretend you're not there. 
And after a couple weeks, you're tired of it. I can't imagine what it would be like to have that all the time. So, um, not that not that the not that Hamas is a group you could ever reason with, or not that any overture of peace would work. Um, but having said that, I do think there are, to use a modern word, microaggressions that happen that make it hard for the Palestinian people. So, it's complicated. Uh, yes, Matthew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had read that as well. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I had read that as well, and I, um, I would not know exactly. All I know is none of the... Arab, uh, none of the um, Islamic-controlled nations have ever acknowledged the existence of Israel, and uh, Saudi Arabia would. They're, that they're considering it, and that would be an unprecedented step. And to your point, I don't know what that would have to do with these attacks, but it is out there, and kind of that sort of flapping in the wind. Okay, so. others. Am I am I shedding light? Am I helping? Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Um, sometimes when you speak on a subject, you have a lot left in reserve, and sometimes you kind of empty the well. Um, I have said most of what I know about the situation. Okay. So if you have further questions, um, I'm happy to hear them, but I doubt I'll know the answer. Um, so. Anything else? All right. Luke 13. Luke 13. I think we can cover the most important points here very quickly. Go down to verse 10. Now he was teaching on the synagogue, in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. The Lord, the Lord, Luke is very clear in his language here. It wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth. But God in the flesh had something to say to this indignant synagogue ruler. You hypocrites. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced, and all the glorious things that were done by him, at all the glorious things that were done by him. I want to talk very briefly about this woman with the disabling spirit. As with everything, we start with a little bit of context. Go back to verse 1. What Jesus, I'm sorry, go back to verse uh, 8, rather. Jesus told them a parable. A man planted a fig tree in his vineyard, 
and he came seeking fruit and found none. Now you guys know the rest of that parable. The owner of the fig tree was going to tear it down for its lack of fruit, but the one of his tenants came along and said, no, well, sir, don't tear that, don't cut that tree down yet. That's sort of a, once you do that, there's no going back. Let me care for it for a year, and if you get no fruit out of it for a year, then come back and then, then cut it down. But let, give, give me some chances here. Now, Jesus was speaking to the Jews about this. He was telling them, you're the fruitless fig tree. You're the fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. And you've got a narrow amount of time before you start bearing fruit, or I'm going to come and cut you down. They would be cut down about 70 years after this event. Now, go ahead with me to verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it to it? It's like a man, it's, it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and it became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So, what we have here are two parables. And they have in between them this story of the woman who'd been bent over by a disabling spirit. In the one parable, Jesus says that Israel is a fruitless tree and it will be cut down unless it starts bearing fruit. And in the next parable, Jesus says that his kingdom is like a fruitful mustard tree. It starts rather small and insignificant. It doesn't look like much right away. But next thing you know, it grows and becomes something that everybody can benefit from. And then he puts this parable right here in the middle, thereby connecting the two. Okay? What, is Jesus, what is Luke trying to communicate to us by putting this parable of the woman with the disabled spirit in between these two parables? Well, he's trying to show us that Jesus, the fruitful one, Jesus, the prevailer over all things, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of this woman's body, the Lord of the Sabbath, is setting up his kingdom, and it will be fruitful and it will grow. And then he's using this synagogue ruler as the very type of person that is a fruitless tree. He's using this synagogue ruler as a sort of a metaphor for the nation. Don't be a fruitless nation, Jesus is telling them. If they were to say, Jesus, what does a fruitless nation look like? Exhibit A, this indignant synagogue ruler. Let's talk a little bit about this event. There's this woman. We don't know her name. We know that she was doing the right thing. She was in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The synagogue was a relatively recent invention in Jewish history when Jesus was walking around. It was only 150, maybe 200 years old at the time. It was uh, put in place um, in between the testamental periods. Jewish people would gather there on Saturdays to be instructed from the law. There was a, a, a curriculum that religious leaders had developed where a certain section of the law and Old Testament and Psalms would be read every Sabbath and they would go on a rotation and the people would be exposed to the whole council of the Old Covenant. And Jesus would go and take his position in these synagogues and it was customary that um, most synagogues had a, a, a rabbi, but there were they recognized that there were eminences among the rabbis. 
Some rabbis were more popular, were greater scholars than others. And so when a higher thought of rabbi would be in the area, it was considered an honor of the typical rabbi to step aside and let the more famous rabbi teach. It was an honor for him to do that. And so Jesus, being eminent and the most honorable teacher in all of Israel, always had an open synagogue to teach in. These synagogues were segregated men and women. Men would not worship with women. And this one apparently had some sort of balcony, which was uh, customary for the time, and all the women would be gathered up in the balcony. And Jesus looked over and saw this woman with a disabling spirit. It says that she was bent over. It says that it was the product of Satan, and it had bound her for 18 years. Now, we don't, I don't think this woman was possessed demonically. We're told that Job suffered under the direct hand of Satan's attacks. We're told that Paul had a thorn in the flesh that was the product of the devil's work in his life. And it was there to torment him. And I believe that this woman was demonically influenced, but not demonically possessed, if that makes sense. This had long held her for 18 years. I had a manager. She was a brilliant woman. She was the um, director of communications for a large, one of America's largest companies, General Electric. She was the VP of communications. She came back to the university that I was at to become our director of communications, and I worked for her. Her name is Carol. And she taught me how to write. <laughs> and Carol had a debilitating back problem. And she would only ever bend over like this. She was always in this position here. And she, to look at you, would crane her neck up like this. And she would walk with a terrible limp. For her physical incapacities, she was a sweet and kind woman who also happened to never like anything I wrote. <laughs> there were a few people who could be hard on me with my writing, and Carol was one of them. And she would say, why don't you cut that down by about a third and try again? And I would try again. She would send it back. Why don't you try again this way? And I would try again. And I don't think I ever succeeded at a good first day. Well, at any rate, I love Carol, by the way. That's, it's a mark of respect. She's brilliant. I always felt bad for her. If I could have taken her and straightened her, I would have, if I had that power. Well, Jesus sees this woman, and he loves her very much. And he says something interesting to her. He says, she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called over to her. Now, in our ESVs, I don't like this translation. He says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. The verb tense that he uses is a perfect verb tense. Now, for those of you, uh, for those of you uh, uh, grammar folks, put that into a perfect tense for me. What would that, how would that translate if that were a, a simple perfect? Anybody? Not you are freed, but... 
No, that, that's, that's, a, that's a more of a present idea. It would say you have been freed. You have been freed. It's, past, it's a past tense action with ongoing results. Okay? Jesus looks at her, and he had already chased the devil off. And then, to emphasize the point, he breaks down this cultural barrier. And what he does is very countercultural. Women were not. Women were invited to observe worship, but they were by no means to be an integral part of it. He calls her forward. He singles her out, which is very unusual. He calls her forward. And then he does something that those people would have considered scandalous. He laid his hands on her and touched her. He'd already freed her from the demonic force that was holding her down, but then he touches her and heals her. And he does so, and she, she's healed immediately. Now, imagine if that procedure were to take place today and they were to put rods in her back. She would be in a hospital bed for weeks, right? While her muscles and her skeleton and all that's in her would adjust to this. But Jesus skips all the physical therapy <laughs> and just heals her. And she's straight as a string. The, we get the word orthotic from it. He makes her right. And the indignant, the indignant Sabbath, the indignant synagogue ruler says something so foolish. There are six days of the week to be healed. Come on those days. How callous can he be? How I mean, how callous is that? He just saw a miracle. He saw the Lord of glory do something that no human has ever done. And the only thing he can get his mind wrapped around is that it took place on a Saturday. Well, Jesus has already said previously that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And what does it mean if you're the Lord of the Sabbath? means you can do with the Sabbath, and you can do on the Sabbath whatever you want. The Sabbath wasn't made for God. The Sabbath was made for man. And the Lord is saying, as Lord of the Sabbath, who made this day for man, I'm going to do something beneficial for a woman. You hypocrites, how many of you on a Sabbath, if you see an animal suffering, won't help an animal? You treat your animals better than you treat this woman. Jesus pulls no punches. And it says that they were shamed. That word shamed is a special word. This is not just, oh, like, you know, a kid comes up with a dumb question in class and the class laughs and he's like, oh, dumb question. That was bad. I shouldn't, you know, that, that, that's not the shame that we're talking about. This is head and hands, ashes on the head. This is a more serious shaming. And I want you to notice the alls. Look right here. Uh, in your text, at verse 17, there's three alls. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. There's three alls right there. All, all, all. You should circle those and connect them. Jesus was putting his adversaries to shame. People who feared him and loved him were praising him. And um, let's see here. And he was doing many other such things. 
like it. Jesus personally has something for this man. Now, aside from the theology, aside from the um, the context of the book of Luke and what Luke is trying to do in the bigger scope of his book, there's something more personal that I want us to be aware of here. Okay. This woman had this struggle and apparently it had become for her um, a, a private thing. She was, she no doubt had heard that Jesus could perform miracles. And she was willing to get close to Jesus, but she was unwilling to come pleading with him for healing like some other women had done. I don't know what her reasons for that were. Other than men and women do the same thing all the time. They've got a personal hurt that's deeply personal that perhaps has been a persistent struggle for years, decades even. And we grow so unaccustomed to help, we grow, better put, we grow so accustomed to the disappointment surrounding that hurt that we just stop asking for help with it. We just come to expect that Jesus doesn't care, that Jesus doesn't want this to be healed, that Jesus doesn't want to move toward us and help us. And when given the opportunity to approach the Lord about it, we demur, we just sort of step back. Perhaps we think we deserve it. Perhaps we think can think all sorts of bad thoughts about it. Jesus had a day of healing for this woman. He cared very much about her and personally, and he wanted, as it were, to make a public spectacle of her. Now, for how many of us, if Jesus said, I would really like to make a public spectacle of you, you'd be like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> uh, you make a public spectacle of somebody else, even if I have to keep hurting. Jesus has other ideas. He wants to be glorified for who he is and what he can do. Now, not every ailment will Jesus heal. The Apostle Paul says that when he was afflicted by the devil, with this thorn in the flesh, he sought the Lord three times, and the Lord said, I'm not going to take it away, but my grace is sufficient for you. And so, even if Jesus doesn't come and heal you of it completely right now, first thing, he will one day. One day he will. He's going to make that better and make that right in a way that amazes you when you're given your new resurrection body. All will be well. But in the meantime, whether Jesus wants to give you victory over this thing that ails you, or whether he wants to give you grace to overcome it, he still wants you to come to him for it. 
So don't hide. Don't hide that ailment from Jesus as though you could successfully hide yourself from Jesus. You can come to Jesus with your ailments. He wants to help. He wants either to take it away in a way that will maximize his glory or he wants to give you grace that is sufficient. Now before, there's two ways to think of that word sufficient. Okay? There's a wrong way and a right way. There's a way of thinking of sufficient like when my kids, um, my, my wife is, a, is an amazing mom and more often than not she makes a special dessert. And when she, on the days that she doesn't make a special dessert, for dessert they get two pieces of candy. And on those days we'll say, no, you can have, they'll say, mommy, what's for dessert? And she'll say, you can have two pieces of candy. And they'll say, Okay. <laughs> Bummer. We don't that that'll be okay. It's that'll work. That's sometimes how we think of the word sufficient. That's not what I wanted, but it'll work. That's not the Bible word. Imagine going to a Michelin star restaurant and getting an eight course meal and someplace was a French chef. And on the eighth course, you take your final bite of food and every bite that you had during those entire eight courses was glorious. And one more bite and you would be too full and it would ruin it. It's just perfect. You're satisfied. That's the word. That's what sufficient means. My grace will be that for you. It will, it will fill you. It will be more. It will be as much for you as you want it to be, as you need it to be. And you will be satisfied in it. So, avail yourself to the grace of Christ. It might be, it might be that he doesn't take it away. It might be that he does. But either way, his grace will satisfy you. So let's pray. Father, Give us grace to look toward your satisfying grace. And I pray that you would um, help us not to hide from you, but to run toward you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.